Welcome to Advent, the start of the Christmas season. As the song goes, it's a most wonderful time of the year. It is a wonderful time indeed, but often the reason for the season gets buried under frantic shopping, crowded malls, traffic jams, stress, anxiety, and unrealistic expectations. So let's pause, take a breath, and focus on what Christmas really means. It is not about shopping, Santa Claus, and presents, but about a tiny baby born in Bethlehem, about the birth of our Savior, Jesus. And no one tells that story better than Dr. Creasy. So take a deep breath, sit back, and listen as Dr. C tells the real Christmas story. So the Christmas story. We're approaching Christmas, and it's a time of expectation, a time of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. And in order to tell the Christmas story, we have to consider why he came to begin with. Why did Christ come into the world at the time he did? He is our Savior, our Redeemer. Why did we need a Savior and a Redeemer? And why did we wait so long for him to come? So I think in telling the Christmas story, we have to begin at the beginning, in Genesis 1, at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, like a giant golden eagle hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, every culture at every time in history, every religion in history, has a creation story. Every one of them. A story of how all of this came to be. How we came to be. Why we came to be. It's a fundamental issue of the human condition. Why are we here and how did we get here? So every religion, every culture, every time has a creation story. And typically, those creation stories involve a great cosmic battle of the gods. And we become the fallout of the battle. The, the idea is expressed by Gloucester in Shakespeare's King Lear when he's on the heath raging at the storm and shaking his fist at the heavens and saying, we are to the gods as flies to wanton boys. They kill us for their sport. This creation story is radically different. This creation story is structured very carefully into seven parts. We've seen that before, haven't we? Seven parts. And each part, as it builds, leads to completion and perfection. It is a perfectly balanced literary unit. The Spirit of God hovering. And God said, let there be light. He turned on the lights. And he called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
which is why in Judaism, the day begins at sundown and ends on the following day at sundown. Shabbat, the Sabbath, begins at sundown on Friday night and continues until sundown on Saturday. So there was evening, there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water, an expanse. In the older translations, the King James, for example, let there be a firmament to separate above and below, the waters above and the waters below. A firmament, it's a metalworking term. When I was in high school, most guys took wood shop or metal shop. Or we all had to take something like that. And, uh, and the girls all took home economics or sewing or cooking or whatever. But uh, I took jewelry making <laughs> because the teacher was a really nice guy. And rather than wood shop that had 30 students in it, we had four or five. So I took jewelry making all the way through high school. Every, at Christmas, every one of my family got jewelry <laughs> that I made in class. And uh, if you take a, a six by six inch sheet of silver, sterling silver, and a ball peen hammer with a little ball on it about the size of a pea, and you connect the corners and find the middle, and you tap the middle, tap, 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 and you keep tapping and you work around that center, tapping, tapping, tapping all the while, the metal will bend upward. And that's how you make a bowl without a seam in it. It's called planishing. So think of the bowl, a silver bowl, turned upside down is a dome, a firmament, separating above from below, the dome of the sky. I like that word. God saw that the light was good and there was evening and morning the first day and then he placed the firmament between the waters to separate the water above from the water below. Water above? Yes, the firmament has holes in it. Sometimes it leaks. That would be called rain, right? So God made the firmament and separated the water under it from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the firmament sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And dry ground appeared. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So he turned on the lights, he separated up from down, he separated wet from dry. And then God said, let the land, the dry land, produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kind. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. So the land produces life, vegetation. And then God turned his attention upward. 
Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. And let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, the sun and the moon. And as God glanced up at the firmament with the sun and the moon, it didn't seem quite right. So he reached into his bucket and he tossed the stars across the firmament. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. So the land was populated with life, vegetation, and now the sky is populated and the sea is populated with life. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. So animal life appears on the land. Turn on the lights, separate up from down, wet from dry, produce life from the land, produce life in the air and in the sea, and creatures on the land. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let us create man in our image. The Hebrew word image is teshlem. And I'm looking up here. It's like shadow. I don't have a shadow standing here because the light's shining the wrong direction. But if I did, the shadow is not me. But it couldn't be without me. It's like me, but not me. So we are in the image of God. We are shadows of God. And God said, let us make man in our image. Now wait just a moment. Who's us? Well, there are three answers to that. Possible answers. Number one, the plural is a plural of majesty. As when Queen Victoria, when told an off-color joke, said, we are not amused. The royal we, the we of majesty. And that works. That works well in the story. The second possibility is God refers to the angelic host. The angels were created before us, we learn later in scripture. And perhaps God is speaking to, in a collegial way, to the angelic host. Now let us create man in our image. Not in the image of the angels, but in a collegial sense, let us do this. That's a possibility. Or 
perhaps, let us make man in our image, is the very first ever so subtle suggestion of the triune nature of God, of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the inner dynamic of the Trinity. That works really well for a Christian reader, for sure. And Paul will write later in his epistles that all things were created through Christ. He was the conduit through which all creation came into being. So it works very nicely here. And I don't think we have to be exclusive and say, well, it's one or the other or the third. It can be all together. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Male is not in the image of God. Female is not in the image of God. Together, we are the image of God. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Subdue it and rule over it. Not step on it and abuse it. Rather, creatively manage what I've given you. Care for it. Protect it. Nurture it. Steer it in a creative way. You can share in creation by managing God's creation. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. So with the sixth day, creation is complete. It is good, complete, and perfect. And it's done in a very symmetrical, very ordered fashion. And thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all the work he had been doing. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished. It was complete and perfect. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And if we are made in the Keshlem, the image of God, we too share in creation. We too deserve to rest on that seventh Sabbath day. So we have a beautiful account, a poetic account of creation. We're not reading an historical account. We're not reading a scientific account. We are reading mythopoeic literature, which is grappling with the fundamental issues of the human condition in the form of story and poetry. And we do it in chapter 1 of Genesis from God's perspective. Now, Across those six days of creation, which day are we most interested in? Well, day six, when we were created, because we will be the subject of this entire book. So, for the very first time, we walk along in a linear fashion, days one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, God rests. 
Then we turn around, drop down into day six and a recapitulation, and we view creation of man from man's perspective, the garden perspective. How did God create us? Well, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Man is masculine singular. From the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Notice in chapter 1, everything God created, he spoke into existence. Let there be X, and there was X. But not with humanity. He formed man from the dust of the earth and he breathed into him the breath of life. We carry within us the breath of God. No other creature does. We do. And it's what makes every individual human being infinitely valuable. We carry within us the breath of God. Think of it as your soul. God was delighted with the man he created. He gave him all of creation to creatively manage and care for. They're in the Garden of Eden, a perfect environment. You know, we often say today, well, crime and sin and awful behavior uh, is, is a function of our environment. Well, Adam had a perfect environment. Eve had a perfect environment. And yet, things went bad. The problem wasn't the apple on the tree, it was the pear on the ground. <laughs> oh, that was a groaner, I know. Okay. But the Lord God is watching the man in the garden. Watching him prune the bushes and caring for the plants. And God said, you know, it's not good for the man to be alone. And I always find it striking that it was God that said it. Apparently, it was fine with Adam. He was working away in the garden. He thought, when I finish up here, I'll go in, have a beer, watch a football game. Life is good. God said, this is not good. Right? So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's sides, not ribs, sides, and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God built a woman from the side he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. He built a woman from the side of the man. Matthew Henry, in the 18th century, wrote a verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible. It's in six volumes. You can go to Amazon.com and download it onto your iPad or Kindle for free. It is a classic work. And in Matthew Henry's commentary, uh, which was published in 1708, he wrote of this verse, Genesis chapter 2 at verse 22, the Lord God built a woman from the side of the man. Matthew Henry wrote, he did not build her from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled upon by him, but from his side to be next to him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved by him. I think that is really fine. 
Matthew Henry. Well, he brought the woman to the man, and Adam woke up, and he saw this stunning creature. If each act of creation leads to completion and perfection, what's the final act of creation? Not man. If man is dust refined, woman is man refined. The jewel in the crown of God's creation. And how did the man react? He broke into poetry. He said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of Ish, man. He made a little joke. And Adam and God guffawed and they laughed and Eve stood there and said, what? (laughs) Well, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. He looked at her, she looked at him. They didn't see other. They simply saw themselves. So who is naked and feels no shame, apart from college freshmen, right? Uh, Babies, babies. When my son Adam was born, he's 39 years old now, but when he was born, uh, his cousin, Adrian, was born a couple months before. And they really grew up together like brother and sister. We lived right close to each other. Uh, They were always staying at one another's overnight. And I have pictures, photo albums, of Adam and Adrian at like a year and a half old in the bathtub playing with their sponge and rubber duck and, and having a grand old time laughing. And, and, uh, and later, at about two, two and a half years old, I have pictures of them in the backyard in the wading pool, stark naked, squirting each other with a hose. They're having a grand old time. Well, the years passed, and they're both eight years old, and... Adrian was staying over, and um, early in the morning, I heard a scream from the bathroom. Ah! What in the world? And I ran in, and Adam had opened the bathroom door, and Adrian had just gotten out of the shower at eight years old, and she was, "Ah!" something happened between two and a half and eight. They were no longer naked and felt no shame. Something happened. I wish the story could end at Genesis chapter 2. Everything was perfect, complete. If only Adam and Eve had children and they continued living in the garden. And No, in chapter 3, we all know what happens. The serpent was more crafty, more subtle than all the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And that began the fall. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God would have taught them the knowledge of good and evil when they were ready to learn it. But these are brand new people. They're not babies. They're adult, human, functioning human beings. But they didn't know. They didn't know the difference. They hadn't been taught yet. So they disobey God. They turn their back on him. They go their own way. Once you know the difference between right and wrong, the knowledge of good and evil, then you're accountable 
for your actions. God can't hold you accountable for something you don't know. But once you know, you're accountable. How long would Adam and Eve have lived had not Genesis 3 occurred? Forever. They were created to be eternal like the angels. A little bit lower than the angels, created to be eternal. But once they fell, God said, I can't allow them to live in this condition of sin forever. Because living forever in the condition of sin is the very definition of hell. Sin entered the world. And when we studied Genesis chapter 3, we defined sin not as an act that one commits, but a condition one is in. A condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. In other words, I would not have held up the 7-Eleven had I been in a right relationship with God. The action is symptomatic of the condition. And that condition of sin has four characteristics. Number one, it's subtle, like the serpent himself. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to sin really big today. It just sort of happens. It creeps into your life, and it just happens. Number two, it distorts our judgment. Rather than confront the reality of sin and deal with it, we rationalize around it. Number three, it escalates. It gets bigger. You know, at first you feel really guilty. Guilt is a good thing. Guilt is to the soul, is to the soul what pain is to the body. It tells you something's wrong. But if you continue, you numb that sense. And you no longer feel it. And the sin gets bigger. Because you cover up the first one with the second one with the third one. And on it goes. Not only for you, but number four, it affects everyone around you. It cascades through society and through generations. In fact, second generation, Cain murders his brother Abel. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve turn their backs on God and they go their own way and they're ashamed. Chapter 4, brother murders brother fratricide and he's impudent. What, am I my brother's keeper? And by the seventh generation, Lamech marries two women. Now women are no longer partners, they're property. And he says to them, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech, 77. He's killed a man for insulting him and said, and I'll kill 77 if I need to. He's arrogant. And by chapter 6 and verse 5, we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And I'm only on page 14. I've got a 2,000-page book here. So what is God going to do? If I were God, <laughs> interesting thought, I would just snuff out this creation and start over somewhere else in the universe. Just say, well, I'll, it'll be better the second time. But God doesn't. He brings the flood. He washes the board clean. He gives humanity a second chance. 
Noah gets off the ark, he plants a vineyard, he gets drunk, he curses his children, and by chapter 11, we're at the Tower of Babel. It happened all over again. So now what? Again, I'd say, all right, I tried the second time, didn't work then, I'm done. Maybe a third time somewhere else. Way, way off in the corner of the universe somewhere. But no. God chooses Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, southern Iraq, right near the Persian Gulf, just north of the Persian Gulf. A totally unknown person. And his wife, Sarai. And he moves them from Ur of the Chaldeans north, up through the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, to Haran in eastern Turkey. And from Haran down to the land of Canaan. And God makes a covenant with Abram and Sarai. And he tells them, through you, all people on earth will be blessed. Through you. And that covenant involves two things. People, progeny, lots and lots of progeny, like the stars in the sky, and property, real estate, in the land of Canaan. And that covenant is an irrevocable covenant. It will never be broken by God. The descendants may break the covenant, but God will not. It is an irrevocable covenant. God introduces in that covenant the plan of salvation. Abraham's name is changed by God to, from Abram to Abraham, father of many. And Sarai's name is changed to Sarah, princess. Sarah was indeed the first Jewish princess. And the plan begins with Abraham and Sarah. And we know the story. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Well, he had a son, Ishmael, first by Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl. But he had a son by Sarah in her old age, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who become the founders of the 12 tribes. And on our story goes. Now, we have studied together in depth Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we know how the story goes. By the time we got to the end of Judges, we were in a really bad place. That was back in the days when the Judges ruled, back at the time of Micah and his idols, back at the time of the Levite and his concubine, who's gang-raped by the Gibeonites and then chopped into 12 pieces and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. And war is declared on the tribe of Benjamin, and they nearly exterminate the tribe of Benjamin. It was a time we read at the end of Judges, when Israel had no king, and everyone did whatever he wanted. A time of utter and total chaos on every level. A time of a horrible, the worst time in the entire Bible. And we might very well question at the end of Judges, whatever happened to this plan of salvation? Because I sure don't see it in Joshua and Judges. I don't see it anywhere. Did God give up and simply turn his back and walk away? But then we turn the page to Ruth. Ruth is our second recapitulation. As we walk through the days of creation, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, then turned around and dropped into day six in Genesis 2, 
so with Ruth do we go back in the days when the judges ruled. There was Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. It's a recapitulation back into the bad old days of the latter judges. And we learned in Ruth something very important. Why did Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer? Why did Boaz redeem Ruth? What was the motive? He loved her. He loved her. And why would God redeem us? I mean, look at us. Look at the world around us. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a, a wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, in which a senior demon is writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, on how to corrupt the target he's been given by Satan, the person, the human being. How do you go about corrupting a human being? And the letters are incredibly insightful. And at one point, he writes to Wormwood. Now, you have to be very careful, he says, when you're engaged in this activity, this pursuit of corrupting your, your human, because God actually loves the little vermin. You know? And, and look, at, look at us. Look at the world around us. Why would God redeem us? We learn in Ruth, because he loves us. That's the motive for redemption. And we learn in Ruth that the one who will redeem us must have three qualities. He must be the next nearest relative. Boaz was not the next nearest relative. There was one closer. He had to get rid of him first. He had to have the resources to redeem Ruth. That is, he had to be able to write the check to redeem the land. And number three, he had to be willing to do it. The first redeemer had the position and the resources, but he wasn't willing to do it. So Boaz was. He had the position then as the next nearest relative willing to do it. He had the resources to write the check, and he willingly redeemed Ruth. Why? Because he loved her. So Ruth, although four chapters long, teaches us incredibly important things. The motive for our redemption, love, and the qualities necessary for the Redeemer. Well, what Redeemer? Where do we hear about him? Oh, Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, the offspring of the woman, Eve. He, her offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is one who will come, an offspring of the woman, who will crush you, who will defeat you, who will defeat everything you're doing. You and what you brought into the world, death. And when we look at the artwork of the crucifixion, from the Middle Ages up into the Renaissance. We see Christ on the cross. Almost always, you'll see a serpent around the bottom of the cross and a skull. Jesus, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection defeats Satan, crushes him, and defeats death. It's introduced in Genesis 3, verse 15, and it plays out all the way across Scripture. So, John, our Apostle John, has thought about this for a long time. You know, flash forward 2,000 years to the birth of Jesus. John was Jesus' cousin. 
and John and his brother James, their father Zebedee, and his wife Salome. Salome was either the sister or sister-in-law of Mary. So they're cousins to Jesus. John was the beloved disciple. John is the last living apostle. John writes his gospel when he's in his late 80s. He's thought about all this. And he tells us in 1 John, the first epistle he writes, he whom we have seen, whom we have heard with our ears, whom we have touched with our hands, whom we have gazed upon, he is the one. John's thought about him for a long time. And in John's gospel, he identifies who Jesus is. In John's gospel, he begins with a prologue, 18 verses. And he begins in verse 1, In the beginning, way back in Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word equals God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. John nails it. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Why did he come? He's foreshadowed in Genesis 3, verse 15. He is our kinsman redeemer. But more importantly, he is God himself. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God put on a face and stepped into this world. And he taught us, and he preached to us application of his teaching, and he healed us, and he went to the cross, and God was nailed to that cross in my place and your place to pay the penalty for our sin, enabling our redemption. It was God on the cross. God, who we nailed to that cross. And why did he do it? Because he loves us. So at the right time, when the message was able to get out to all the world, at the right time, at a time when the Romans had built 58,000 miles of roads in the ancient world, at a time when international trade, maritime trade was fully developed, in a time when there was a common language, thanks to Alexander the Great, Greek was the common language of the ancient world at the time of Jesus. Those two things enabled the message to get out to the world. The common language, the entire New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in 250 BC. It could get out to the world, the whole known world of the, of the time, the Mediterranean world. And it got out by means of the roads and the maritime trade routes. At just the right time, God put on a face and stepped into the world. Not as a king, not as a warrior, but as a helpless infant born in Bethlehem. And now we turn to Luke chapter 1. The story. In Luke chapter 1, we begin. At the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. At the time of King Herod, Herod was king from 37 BC to 4 BC. So at that time, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, both of the tribe of Levi, Zechariah was a priest, 
And he was of the division of Abijah. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, just observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. So this couple, a priestly couple, lived a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. We've been to the place of John the Baptist's home. Uh, it's about a 30, 25-30-minute drive from the middle of Jerusalem, uh, the temple area. And uh, remember back in Numbers, when we studied Numbers, the land was marked out for allocation. After the conquest in Joshua, it was distributed to the 12 tribes. But the tribe of Levi got no land, no real estate. They did get 48 towns and villages in which they would live rather evenly scattered throughout the land of Canaan, east and west of the Jordan River, 48 cities, towns, villages to live where they would minister to the people. Offering sacrifice, we learned, could only be done at the tabernacle. We built the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. We learned how to use it in Leviticus. You could only offer sacrifice at the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was portable. We noted it was at Bethel for a while. It was at Shiloh for a while. It moved around. So sacrifice could be made for various groups of people at different times. You could only offer the sacrifice there. With Solomon, Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem. 966 to 959. It's dedicated in 959. And that becomes the permanent place. The tabernacle's retired. The Ark of the Covenant goes into the temple. You could only make sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. So no longer would the tabernacle come to you. You had to go to the temple. Three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and more times if you wanted, but only there. So the priests would serve at the temple. Now we read, Zechariah was of the division of Abijah. Back in David's day, prior to the building of the temple, David drew up the blueprints. It was David's temple, not Solomon's. He was the subcontractor who put it up. But David restructured the priesthood to serve at the temple. And he created 24 divisions of priests with 1,000 priests in each division. That was way back 1,000 BC. So flash forward 1,000 years, when Zechariah is a priest living a little bit north of Jerusalem, how many priests are there in the 24 divisions? I don't know, if there were 24,000 1,000 years before, there's got to be, I don't know, 10,000 in each division, a whole lot of them. And, we're, and we read that once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before the Lord, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. He's a priest. His primary job as a priest, the definition of a priest in the Hebrew Scriptures, is a person, a Levite, born a priest. You can't become one. You're born one or not. A priest stood between the people and God, and he spoke to God on behalf of the people. He offered the prayers of the people in the symbolic form of incense before God. That was his job. A prophet stood in the same place, facing the other direction. He spoke to the people on behalf of God. But a priest 
speaks to God on behalf of the people, which is why in the pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic Church, when you came into church, you sat out in the congregation. There was an elevated platform, typically three steps. It had a rail in front of it. The altar was behind it. The priest stood with his back to the congregation, facing the altar and the tabernacle in which the body and blood of Christ was kept. And he spoke to God on behalf of the people. He offered the prayers of the people to God. It comes right out of Exodus and Leviticus. So Zechariah, his division was on duty. If there were 24 divisions, how many times a year would that division be on duty at the temple? Two weeks, right? 12 months, 24 divisions, two-week reserve duty. So Zechariah, like all the other priests in the 48 cities, would minister to the people. He would teach them. He would counsel them. He would uh, apply the teachings of Scripture. But he couldn't offer sacrifice. He couldn't offer the prayers without the temple. So Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was chosen by lot to offer the prayers of the people in the temple. How many times had he done that? Probably never. It's like winning the lottery. If you have several thousand priests in a division and you only serve two weeks out of a year, how many times do you get to do that? Probably never. It would be very much like Father Mark here at this parish. If a Roman Catholic priest could only say Mass at St. Peter's Basilica at the main altar, nowhere else. And the person who said Mass each day, of all the priests in the world, was chosen by lottery. Well, imagine here we are in our class, and Father Mark comes over, and excited as can be. Oh, I have a big announcement to make. I just got a text from Pope Francis, and I've been chosen to say Mass at St. Peter's Basilica in August August 24th of 2017. What would we do? Well, Bill would put a trip to Italy together and we would all go with him, right? We would have yellow t-shirts with this picture on the front. We'd have little flags that said, Our Mother of Confidence Parish. And we would all be with him. We'd have a grand party the night before. We'd have a big celebration afterward. And we would have a fine time together. And that's what happens with Zachariah. All his friends go. All the neighbors go to Jerusalem. It's not that far for Zachariah. You can drive it in 30 minutes. But... He went. He had never been in that temple before. The only person who can go in the temple is the person who either is replenishing the oil in the lamps re daily, twice a day, or replenishing the bread and wine on the table of showbread once a week, or offering the prayers of the people morning and evening. Nobody else goes in. Off limits. He's never been there. This is a really big day. So when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were outside, all of us, with our yellow t-shirts with this picture, and everybody else. And he opened the doors. The doors to the temple were two stories tall, overlaid with pure 24 karat gold, a vine embossed on the outside across the two doors. A vine. The vine in Scripture Israel is the vine, God's vine. The grapes, the fruit, are the people, 
When Jesus left the Last Supper with his disciples and he walked from the southwestern neighborhood near the temple, past the southern steps, around the corner to, along the eastern wall. It was Passover, which means there was a full moon. Always a full moon at Passover. It's dated on a lunar calendar. And the moon rises in the east, up over the Mount of Olives. A big full moon, the soft light of the full moon reflecting off the golden doors of the vine. And Jesus walked past, and he looked at it. And they all looked at it. It was beautiful. And he said, I am the genuine vine. That's what triggers the comment. What he sees walking past on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Zechariah opened the door. And he stepped in. The entire interior overlaid, cedar wood overlaid with 24 karat gold. The only light inside was from the menorah. The flames from the menorah. Pure virgin olive oil is fuel, creates no smoke. The light flickering on the gold. And he saw to the left that big menorah, to the right the table of showbread with the bread and wine, directly in front of him the altar of incense, with the curtains separating him in the holy place from the holy of holies on the other side. He was standing in the presence of God Almighty, creator of the universe. He was overcome with awe. And as he stood before that altar of incense, he closed his eyes and he prayed. A brief prayer, 20 seconds. And he opened his eyes, and there at the right side of the altar of incense, where he could reach out and touch him, was this huge, magnificent creature, an angel, not Hallmark card angels, massive, fearsome, typically portrayed in art as a warrior. And Zechariah was petrified because nobody was in there when he walked in. There's only one way in and one way out. And suddenly, there he is. And Zechariah is on the way to the floor. The, the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled, gripped with fear. The angel said, as they always do, fear not, because Zachariah is in the midst of a heart attack. <laughs> fear not, Zachariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. So what prayer did Zachariah pray? Lord, I know Elizabeth and I are way up in years, but if there is any way... Please give us a son. And the prayer was answered. Your prayer has been answered. Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to name him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. This little boy will be a Nazarite from birth, a lifelong Nazarite. Now, we've studied so far in the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis through Ruth. How many lifelong Nazarites are there in the Bible? Three. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. That's it. This is a really important job the boy's going to have. Zechariah is stunned. He asked the angel, 
how can I be sure of this? It's not an expression of doubt. It's, he, he can't wrap his mind around the, the, the magnitude of this event. He can't get hold of it. I'm an old man. I'm well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Not as a punishment for unbelief, but Zachariah is plunged into silence in order to ponder these events and comprehend them. And notice in the story how many people are plunged into silence. Elizabeth will become pregnant and she will be in solitude for, or in seclusion for the entire 12 months. Nine months. <laughs> Wait, I'm thinking of an elephant or something, right? <laughs> the entire nine months. The people in the story are silent. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. So Gabriel went to Nazareth, a tiny little village, no more than 20 extended families, a couple of hundred people maybe, in the Jezreel Valley on a finger ridge up on the cliffs. A know-nothing place of no importance whatsoever. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Mary was 13, 14 maybe, pledged to be married. We learned about betrothal previously in the Hebrew Scriptures. A betrothal is a binding legal contract between two families. Once the betrothal occurs, the couple is legally married. She's not yet taken up housekeeping with him. That will come soon. I imagine the invitations are sent out, the parties, are, the caterer has been scheduled, everything's ready. But they're, in fact, contractually married. The angel said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Well, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's, let's call her 13 years old. She's by herself in a little house. Many of you have been to Nazareth with me, to the Church of the Annunciation. The lower church has the traditional house of Mary. It may or may not be where she lived, but it's nearby, and it's a nice place to remember it. But it's a small, a small cottage at best. And she's by herself, and perhaps she's washing the dishes, and, and there's no one else there, like Zachariah in the holy place. And suddenly this massive, awesome figure appears, almost always portrayed as a warrior. Now, we've read Judges. We read about the bad old days and things that happened to young girls. We read about the Levite and his concubine being gang-raped and murdered and chopped up into pieces. The Romans are occupying this land. There are soldiers all over. And Nazareth overlooks the Via Maris, the main international trade route. And suddenly you're a 13-year-old girl in a little rural village in the Middle East, 
2,000 years ago and this massive male figure appears in your house? What is she thinking? She is terrified. She wondered, what is going to happen here? Because it can be nothing but bad. The angel said to her, fear not, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, the son of God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. That's a whole lot to take in for a 13-year-old girl. And she knows Every girl knew that if you are betrothed to a man, the binding legal contract of marriage has been signed by your both families. If you are betrothed to a man, we've studied Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, and you have sex with someone else and you become pregnant, you will be taken to the gate of that town and stoned to death. That was the time, the place, the culture. That's what you did. And Mary knows it. Every girl was taught that from the moment she could understand. Mary knows this. Even today, in many parts of the Middle East, not necessarily in the big cities, but many particularly rural areas of the Middle East, if a girl becomes pregnant before she's married, her family kills her. It's an honor killing. She's brought shame upon the family. It happens all the time in the Middle East, in the rural areas in particular. Mary knows this. So she asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? How will, how will this occur? Because I'm a virgin and I intend to remain a virgin until I move in with Joseph and we have a little, lovely little cottage with a white picket fence and flowers and a bunch of kids running around. That was her vision of what her life would be in this little village. How will this be? And it, what are the mechanics of this? And the angel answered. And it's the only time in scripture an angel blushes. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he changes the subject. You know, even Elizabeth, your relative, and he goes off on that. But that's how it will happen. The, the virginal conception. I, I never really understood the mechanics of it. But we were diving in the Egyptian Red Sea. And I've told you this story in other contexts. And beautiful day, mid-afternoon, the water was like liquid crystal. We were down at about 110 feet off the bottom, and a sandy bottom headed toward a reef, and the sun was shining, and I noticed on the bottom my shadow was out in front of me. And I turned and looked up, 110 feet up, and you could see the sunbeams coming through the water, illuminating me and making the shadow, 110 feet under the water. And and then I understood. When I rolled off that zodiac into the water, splash, and dropped down to the bottom in a nice horizontal skydiving position, you're creating a, a channel, a tunnel, and the water's flowing in behind you as you're going down. You're penetrating the water. 
But the light came through the water and illuminated me and made the shadow, and it never moved a molecule of water. That's the mechanics. Like the light shining through the water. John wrote in his prologue that Jesus is the light that came into the world. So Gabriel waits for an answer. And there is a whole lot at stake. Because very possibly she could be accused, and she's got to tell Joseph, she could be accused and taken to the town gate and stoned to death. That's a very real possibility. Best case scenario, everybody in Nazareth would know. It's a small village in a rural area. When we traveled to the Mediterranean recently on our cruise, we stopped at Santorini. And Santorini is a small island. It's part of a caldera of a volcano in the Aegean. Very small island and a beautiful island. But we had a guide on Santorini, uh, Spiros. And he was born on Santorini. And he went to college in Athens, studied archaeology, because he wanted to come back home and work on the archaeological site on the other side of the island. But Greece is bankrupt. They defunded the project, so he couldn't work there. So he was doing day guiding for the tour, the cruise ships. And really nice guy. And he took us all through the island. And he said, I was born on this island. In fact, the village we're going into is where I was born. And everyone in the village is related. My parents live there, my grandparents, my brothers and sisters, my nieces and nephews. Everybody in town is related. And when you grow up in a town like that, everybody knows everything. You can't get away with anything. Everybody knows everything. In fact, he said, we have no crime. Because if I stole... I'd be known as Spiros the Thief. My children would be known as the children of Spiros the Thief, and my grandchildren would be the grandchildren of Spiros the Thief. Everybody would know. We don't lock our doors. There's no crime. We only have two policemen on all Santorini, and they're for the tourists. You leave the keys in the car. What idiot would steal a car on Santorini? Where are you going to go? And that was Nazareth. Everybody would know. If Mary became pregnant by someone other than Joseph, she would be a pariah, a social outcast. Not a single woman in Nazareth would speak to her. Men would look at her with a leering gaze. She would be an outcast. Best case scenario. Indeed, that happens. We think of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in Nazareth, and oh, everybody loved them. They were such a, a lovely, holy family. No, later in the gospel, according to John, John knows him, they're relatives, and Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's in a, a, a fierce debate with the religious leaders, and he says to them, you, your father is Satan. And they said to him, at least we know who our father is. We of fornication have not been born. So that dogged Jesus and Mary the rest of their life. There's a lot at stake. How can a 13-year-old girl 
If Zachariah can't quite wrap his mind around this, how could she? St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a series of sermons for Advent and for December 22nd in his sermon. Part of that sermon is the Office of Readings for December 22nd in the Liturgy of the Hours. He said, when Gabriel made the offer, there was a pregnant pause. (laughs) As Mary considers her options. And Bernard of Clairvaux wrote that at that point, during that silent pause, all the angels in heaven took in a collective breath. (gasps) And then she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you said. And Bernard of Clairvaux said, with that, the angels of heaven went, because she had a choice. She could say yes or no. We have the same choice. We can say yes to Christ or no. And in fact, most people say no. They're not interested. They don't believe it. They, they know other people who did say yes, like those weird people who sit in the class on Tuesday night and uh, don't want to be like them. Most people say no. You have total freedom. God is not going to force himself upon you. Mary has the freedom to say yes or no. But with that knowledge comes responsibility. Mary says yes. And I think we could say many things about Mary. But I think the most important quality of Mary, the most important thing she did, she is the first person to say yes to Christ. She's the first person who had enough faith and enough courage to say yes. She is a model of faith for every one of us. So Mary has to tell Joseph, gotta be told. We don't have the conversation in scripture. We can only imagine it. Joseph is heartbroken, outraged. We read in Matthew that he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He won't accuse her and have her stoned to death. He loves her. But he was going to divorce her quietly. That is, break the betrothal. Break the binding legal contract which would require the rabbi in Nazareth, and there was a synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus preaches at it in Luke chapter 4. And the rabbi would have to file the proper paperwork in Jerusalem, much like getting in the Catholic Church, getting an annulment. It's got to go through Rome and the whole business. Same thing here. But he set the wheels in motion. And clearly, Mary cannot stay in Nazareth. Can't stay. So where is she going to go? The only person who would have any understanding of this is Elizabeth and Zachariah. And Elizabeth is a relative. So Mary leaves Nazareth. And she walks about 80 miles south to Elizabeth and Zachariah. Elizabeth takes her in. Mary stays for three months. It was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that Gabriel came to Mary, and she stays with Elizabeth until John is born, until after John is born. 
Imagine the conversation they had. Long, late nights talking around the dinner table, Elizabeth and Mary. After John's birth, Elizabeth convinces Mary to go back to Nazareth. I, I, I can't. Joseph won't have me. He, he's divorcing me. He won't have me. Everybody would know. I, I come back after three months, obviously pregnant. I, I'd be an outcast. They might even stone me. I, I, it would be too humiliating. But whatever Elizabeth said, over time, Mary agreed to go back. And she makes the journey, 80 miles. An unmarried, pregnant, 13-year-old walking the roads. Right before she arrives in Nazareth, Joseph was sound asleep, and Gabriel came to him in a dream and tells him the plan. And when Joseph woke up, he said, oh my God, what have I done? He didn't even know where she went. She's been gone for three months. What am I going to do? Knock on the door. And he answered the door, and there she is. Standing there, pregnant, little blue suitcase. <laughs> Can I come in? They go in, they close the door. I would love to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> but you know, when they talk, and we read in Matthew that Joseph took her to be his wife. We talked about people being plunged into silence like Zechariah. Elizabeth is in solitude. Joseph, like Joseph, but he never has a single word in Scripture. He just says, he says nothing, not a single line. Joseph, the quiet man, he keeps it all inside. Michael Card a Christian songwriter, wrote a song called Joseph's Song. And I think it captures Joseph. The lyrics go, how could it be this baby in my arms sleeping so peacefully? The son of God, the angel said. How could it be? Lord, I know he's not my own, not of my flesh, not of my bone. Still, Father, let this baby be the son of my love. Father, show me where I fit in this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the son of God? Lord, for all my life, I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? He, he looks so small, his face and hands so fair. And when he cries, the sun seems to disappear. But when he laughs, it shines again. 
करते हैं Well, of course, Mary and Joseph journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the census called by Rome. Caesar Augustus in Rome took a census of the entire Roman world. Nothing unusual. We do that every 10 years in our country. The government has to know how many people there are to support infrastructure and plan budgets and taxes and so on. They travel to Nazareth uh, to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph That was his hometown. Almost a hundred miles they travel. Mary on a donkey. No wonder she gives birth when she arrives. You know. But uh, and the innkeeper, you know, he's not. There's no room here. It was a caravan sarai. When we travel to Turkey in the footsteps of Paul, and we visit Iconium, uh, Iconium, a beautiful town in central Turkey. Uh, where the, uh, the, the sect of Islam, the whirling dervishes, were, was founded. It's a mystical se- uh, sect of Islam. And they have a cultural center there that used to be a medieval se- caravan sarai on the Silk Route from China uh, into Europe. And they're like the missions in California. They're a day's journey apart. So travelers would stay at the caravan sarais. It's a protected, walled-in area with a large courtyard where people would stay, the animals would stay, the people would, typically if the weather's nice, they'd sleep out in the courtyard, uh, they'd, uh, they'd talk, they all, they're all traveling together, so they see each other every night. And uh, if it rained, uh, you could go inside. There's not a lot of room, but you could go inside. They had a kitchen, they had uh, a stable, a blacksmith shop for the animals. You stayed. And you paid, but Mary's pregnant. She's about to give birth. They're in the courtyard, not like a holiday in a caravanserai. And you don't want to give birth in front of a hundred other people. So Joseph went to the innkeeper and he said, uh, "Houston, we got a problem. My wife is going to give birth like right now." And the innkeeper is very sympathetic, and he said, "Well, out in back, I have a stable where you'll have privacy." Let's take her there. I'll get my wife to help. She obviously functioned as a midwife when there's a birth there, and um, and that's where it happened. And we all know the story. It's uh, you know we tell it every every year at Christmas. And Jesus is born. But again, why is he born? Because God introduced the plan of redemption in Genesis chapter twelve. Because of what happened in Genesis chapter three. And God said to the serpent, "A descendant of the woman will crush you, and you will wound him." And we waited all that time. We've been moving Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, recapitulation of Ruth, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings—a linear narrative all through with recapitulation. But now it's time. The Romans have built the roads to get the message out. The maritime trade routes have been established. There's a common language in which the story can be told to the entire Roman world. The time is right. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply a person from Nazareth, he is God and fleshed. John said, "What we saw with our eyes, heard with our ears." Touched with our hands, 
what we have gazed upon and pondered. This is him. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and lived among us. He's God incarnate. And the reason he came into the world was to accomplish our redemption. And the motive for it was love. We learn it in Ruth, and we see it acted out in the Gospels and onward. The story of redemption. It doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that plan is still on the move. Jesus came into this world. He went to the cross. He died on our behalf. He rose again, ascended into heaven. And the plan continues. The gospel moving out into the world. And here we are tonight talking about it. The plan is still on the move. This is more than about the story of Christmas. It's about the story of the birth of the Messiah, of God incarnate, and about our rebirth into the family of God. We hope you enjoyed the Christmas story with Dr. Creasy. And know that all of us here at Logos Bible Study wish you a blessed Christmas and a joyous new year.